Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Jumanji. I'm glad you decided to buy this place. I'm sure that you and your kids will be very happy here. Every house has secrets. Everybody in town thinks the place is haunted. But what happened in this house? Little Alan Parrish. He just vanished about uh, 25 years ago. It's a mystery that began a long time ago. When Alan Parrish was just a young boy who made an incredible discovery. Jumanji, you want to play? Alan, look. In the jungle, you must wait until the dice read five or eight. Twenty-six years later, Peter and Judy Shepard are about to play the same game and make an incredible discovery of their own. Are you Alan Parrish? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Everyone thought you were dead. Now, never shaved before. They must roll the dice. You're playing the game I started in 1969. I'm gonna have to play. And finish the game together. It's not my turn. Whose turn is it? Sarah Whittle. Alan. 26 years ago, we started playing a little game. Whoa, God, sir! No, Alan, Come on, I have been over 2,000 hours in therapy convincing myself that this exists. Everyone Sarah, knows. Sarah, Sarah, we're all gonna sit down. We're gonna finish it. This is the second of a two-show deal we have with Chris Finnick to cover the beloved oddball movies of his childhood. Now, he paid us for one, but we're going to do two for a pair of reasons. One, we weren't sure we'd be able to go get a feature-length show out of the dinosaur picture, how wrong we were there. We did, but we did, yes. Two and a half hours. Baffling. <laughs> <sighs> out of an hour and ten minutes movie. <laughs> Lots of fun, but baffling. Okay, and two... Chris spent a long time putting together a TV tropes page for The Princess Thieves, entirely unbidden. I didn't ask him to do this, he just did it. And you guys should check that out. It's extremely well-researched and accurate. And as with We're Back, this is not a movie we would ever have considered doing on our own, but we found a surprising amount while digging around in there. We're also going to talk, add a little at the end about the spiritual successor Zathura, a space adventure, which few have seen and more should. We are joined again by Brendan Agnew. Hello. 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 Uh, this is not on Netflix in the UK. Is it on, in America? It was. I think it left this. Uh, I think it left this September. So it's uh, it's gone in the morning, just like Jack Burton. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a thing now. I think. Just we're going to talk about the status on Netflix and ultimately whether you have to track it down yourself on DVD. Um, so yeah, uh, you can just get this on DVD or. And especially in the UK, where the difference in price between a new DVD and a new Blu-ray is pretty minimal, get it on Blu-ray, because it actually looks really good in 1080p. The colours pop, so I recommend that. That's if you liked Jumanji. If you've already seen it and you have a particular distaste for Jumanji, it's not going to change your mind. This is by no means a brilliant film that we're going to gush about. Neither is it a rubbish film. It's probably why we weren't really going to 
cover it in the first place. It's a mixed bag of monkeys. <clears throat> so again, let's set the scene for Jumanji. It's Joe Johnston again. Uh, he did um, Captain America, the first Avenger, and Jurassic Park 3. So that's two films we've already covered of his. And The Rocketeer. And The Rocketeer we haven't yet covered, but I'm sure Neil will want to be on when we do. Um, and it was 1995, so the effects we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, <laughs> um, it, it was 1995, so um, Jurassic Park was a huge family fun feature with big loads of creatures running around the place, and this kind of surfed in on the wave of that. Uh, it's James Horner again. We couldn't get away from him this weekend. He did the score for We're Back as well. And um, what else do we do? What else? Well, he's done like Aliens. He did Star oh, yeah. Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, no, I know that. I know that what James, James Horn has done, but I'm sure we've also seen something which he did end recently. Up watching something a fortnight. I just go. It's James Horner again. It's James Horner. Um, he he didn't do. Oh, that was it. He didn't do Zathura. That was uh, John Debney. John Debney. That was it. The uh, uh, composer for Iron Man Two. So he worked with John Favreau before. So uh, it's also written by Jonathan Hensley, who uh, had the spurious honour of writing um, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is uh, one of the uh, absolute best Die Hards. Uh, may- maybe the best? And Ooh, controversial. Okay, so for folks who haven't seen Jumanji, it is about a game that kind of, like, when you land on a square, things, it's a jungle-themed game, things from the jungle come out sort of of the world and... Do they attack you or just, like, run at you or, you know... Like they, they appear imp- and they make trouble. They mildly imperil you. Yes, and the people around you. Or so hunt you for sport. board game with dice. Yep. And um, it's a very plain-looking track. Um, yeah, there's no numbers on it, around, I think. There's no numbers. It looks like it was carved by um, people who, had, uh, who specifically were trying to sort of get a sort of African jungle... Mm theme going the, there. Um, the pieces look like they're made mm. of um, possibly ivory and yeah. uh, and dark wood. The hunter who comes out himself and the fact that it starts in 1869 suggests that this is something from the uh, mid to late 19th century and uh, it's some kind of magic board game because I mean I don't think this was in major general production. Mm. It's some kind of enchant... They ne- That's what's interesting I think probably about the Jumanji itself that they never really go into its history no. like they never meet an old wise man who's like ah oh. you don't get that weird little prologue yeah. where they go into the old haunted toy shop and find yeah. the spooky game on the shelf at the back that nobody wants and it's all covered. sure was a shame what happened to those kids what played Jumanji back in 69 yeah. <laughs> you don't want to go down that road no though. you don't want to go down that road <laughs> um, so yeah uh, the, 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 it's an enchanted board game which I mean, that's a great premise for a movie, and uh, you know, they they sell that, and I, I like the fact that they preserve the mystery, and it's being remade and rebooted in 2017 with The Rock, and I kind of hope that they don't go into it, and if they do, they'd better make it good, because if you're going to replace mystery with something actually a statement of fact, it better be better than what's in our heads. That's one of the things that you know they would have... If they made this today, they would have gone into exhaustive detail about the mythology and the who's and the what's and the where it came from. Whereas with this, it's like, no, these kids get rid of it in the prologue because it's bad, and that's all we know. I was going to say they could start up the uh, Jumanji cinematic universe, but they almost kind (laughs) of do that with Zathura. Mm -hmm. And these 
both books were written by the same guy, and in the second book, Zathura, the kids come across the Jumanji game and go, nah, and don't play that, and uh, instead play Zathura, which suggests that it's totally a, a con- conjoined universe. Mm. Well, but the, the kids in the second book appear at the end of the Jumanji story. Oh, right. The, the kids, Judy and Peter, who've been playing the board game Jumanji throughout the book, take it back to the park where they find where they found it and their neighbours Danny and Walter gotcha. find Jumanji ah, and take it home I was going to say how could that happen because they're suddenly in an alternate timeline but that's all part of the movie not the book yes books both books are very straightforward they they're are, like kids they're picture, picture books. books they're very similar you describe them as Dr Seuss they're kind of yeah so you've got elephants on bikes and elephants on trikes and elephants called Mike so it begins in 1869 with these two terrified children trying to bury this thing because um um, clearly they played it and it just wasn't having it. Did they finish it? Did they close it up and bury it without having finished? They can't. They probably it. they probably finished it. I mean, you can't really stop playing until the end, so... Yeah, they, they must have finished it because... I don't know, Bonnie um, Hunt has a good go at stopping playing it for 27 <laughs> years. Well, yeah, but that's the point. When they go back to it, that game is still in progress. Okay. Uh, when um, Alan and Sarah start playing, yeah, in it's a first. It's a new game. Right? It's a new game. Okay, which suggests that the previous game must have been finished. Otherwise, they'd have been sitting there waiting for a couple of yeah. presumably deceased kids to join in. So it's a good opening. It's sort of like it sets up the, the sense of history. And another thing I really, really like is that after that, you get a really long chunk of 1969. This is Robin Williams when he was a kid, and uh, it's, a, it's a little kid named Alan who is having problems with bullies, and it's kind of... I've been reading... I've been listening to the audiobook of It, because my Kindle broke, um, and uh, a lot of Stephen King. And so <laughs> when this kid's trying to race away from the bullies on his bike, I just I immediately thought, you know, sure was a shame. What happened to that little Alan fella? Because... <laughs> Because it, it just immediately, like, uh, you know, I thought, this is, I got kids here, but these kids are going to find, like, 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 pin this this boy down and do terrible things to him. Instead, they just beat the crap out of him. But before that, um, he stops off at his dad's shoe factory and um, meets uh, a man. Hmm. This is uh, one of those 90s things where it's like, um, you know. Racism! <laughs> <laughs> But, but I mean, it's, like, it's the friendly kind. Yes, yeah, the friendly kind <laughs> of ignorant racism. Where he meets a, 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 a black um, uh, factory worker at the uh, shoe. Carl. Uh, yeah, Carl Bentley. Uh, uh, Carl Bentley at the uh, shoe factory, named Soul, Soul Man. Mm. Mm-hmm. He's invented the sneaker, uh, the proper sneaker. And up until that point, they just had um, Converse. But uh, you know, he's got the proper like 1989 Nike high tops. Yeah, right there in 1969. <laughs> he's a visionary. It, it does seem like you wouldn't really jump from a plimsoll to yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> like, there'd be steps along the way between Converse to that. But you know, he was a visionary, and obviously the the, the act like um, Alan acts. You know, in trying to hide from his dad, who runs the uh, factory. Um, puts it on a conveyor belt where he gets chewed up by a machine which buggers the machine up uh, Carl gets blamed for this, Carl gets fired so Alan has allowed another man to f- uh, have, receive the chop for his mistake and he never owns up to it mm. they, they, I do like the fact that this is set up from the very beginning though, you don't although obviously you have sympathy for Alan because he's being chased by bullies and you know we, we don't 
see anything to even imply that he's invited this or, or you know, done anything to, to cause them to go after him. Just the, the boy, the alpha male of the group, as it were, has decided he doesn't like Alan being friends with the girl he claims mm. is his girlfriend. You're macking on my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, You're but, 12. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's all that about? Um, but um, but Alan is quite a little cowardly custard. He, he does sort of sneak out the back while mm. Carl's getting yelled at for um, his mistake. Yeah. Um, and doesn't make any attempt to own up to that or, or face up to his dad. He's, he's clearly quite scared of... Yeah, he has some growth yeah. to uh, to go through. Absolutely. Uh, so then uh, at dinner, his parents, um, Martha and Thomas Wayne, are about to go out to uh, a posh dinner. And uh, his dad said, uh, well done for having the shit kicked out of you by bullies. You didn't try to run, even though you were at that point trying to sneak away. Um, for that, you get rewarded with being sent away to boarding school. To which any kid would be like, you were going to punish me for this for trying to run. But instead, you've twisted it round to uh, some sort of reward. And he's like, you know, you'll become a man. I wonder, do kids these days go, oh, I can't wait for my parents to send me to boarding school. It'll be totally like Hogwarts just without the magic. I don't. That just sounds boring. I I have very little interaction these days with with people who are are likely to be going to boarding schools. Mm. I did know a couple of kids when I was younger who went to boarding school, um, but it was it was only ever in a situation of um, parents work away, Mm. and it it comes down to having a job which says either you put your kids in boarding school hmm. or you can't take this position. My father we need to be able to send you here, there, and everywhere. My father frequently threatened me with boarding school. He was, you know, I'll send you away. I can't, um, you know, if you don't shape up. Um, yeah, it's good. it seems almost a, a cliche, you know. They're oh, we're going to send you away to boarding school, like something yeah. that you know jerk parents would say to kids on The Simpsons back in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. It's our entire political class, though. Yeah. That's, that's kind of part well, of the problem is that they... I should have said I should have like um, dared him to do it dad send me away to boarding school it'll cripple you financially and I'll become a Tory <laughs> <laughs> which actually he would quite have liked so but I mean he didn't go to boarding school and I, I, mean, I don't think he could really have afforded that so I don't know why he used that as a threat but it made me feel unwanted over and over again so I can completely understand where Alan's coming from with this basically he was you know like I hate you I don't want to be like you mm. Well, just the, the way his dad puts it across to him is like he's building this boarding school up as this wonderful thing and it's a to make a man opportunity. of you. Yeah. And then when Alan says he doesn't want to go, yeah. his dad's like, well, then you've got to go even more so that they can turn you into somebody who would want to be there. And it's like, well, clearly you made the decision that the kid was going to go to boarding school one way or the other. The context yeah. is irrelevant. Bingo. So, uh, yeah, he, Alan decides to run away because, you know, fuck this. And um, then the girl who's the girlfriend, why, of this horrible psychopathic kid, uh, turns up at his door and is like, hey, sorry, I told him not to, not to spank you. And that's just like Mitch Kramer's sister in Dazed and Confused. I told them to stay away from Mitch Kramer's ass. And look what happened. He got paddled silly. And he's like, oh, hey, do you want to play this new... Oh, yeah, because he, he also found Jumanji. It was buried in a building site right next to the factory. So he's, he's like, hey, do you want to play this weird African game with me? She's like, okay. And they start playing the he game. Hears the, just, just to go back to that briefly, he hears the, 
the drums yeah. coming from the box. It's got now, like that tribal pug, tribal drums. Is this that the the drums kick in when there's a kid around who needs the Jumanji. Um, the experience of having Jumanji thrown at them? Because the idea is that while it might seem like ridiculously cruel, like the Triwizard Tournament, the Jumanji is actually there to help you grow as a person. Mm. Question mark. Well, this was this was. The Although thing. if you fail, you're doomed. Yes, this is true. <laughs> but my theory was. Suppose it's a it's um trial by fire if, if you and look monkeys. at what monkeys um, on fire what Alan's facing and what Judy and Peter are facing later on they are extremely difficult situations for kids to be put in yeah. but they are not immediate survival threats they're not with parents who beat them they're not you know they're not in situations where they're, they're actually having to tackle um, physical threats what Jumanji gives them hmm. is physical threats to focus on it's actually a way to process all of that tension and stress and anxiety mm-hmm. that they're experiencing on an emotional level but doesn't have a real world physical thing to point it at told you we had stuff to say about this <laughs> it, it does seem to zero in on them and it, it provides them a sense of perspective which is rough for kids anyway because yeah. they're so egocentric and and it's kind of a oh wait you know what maybe maybe this isn't quite so bad um there were lions trying to eat me just five minutes ago so i think i've got this whole bullies taking my bikes thing sorted now yeah like basically, uh, the, 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 you know, when if Alan then met the bully, he'd be like, "You just, just punch me all you want. I've I've faced down a hunter. Just have at it." And then, then that point, he just then like leaps on top of the bully and starts bleeding all over his face. You don't know where I've been, Henry. You don't know where I've been. <laughs> and they're just like well, laughing every time Henry punches him. That'll freak him out. Well, what what's kind of clever about the way Johnson sets this up is that both Alan and his father are talking about the central you've got to face your fear conflict mm-hmm. while they think they're talking about something completely different because the central face your fear that Alan has to own up to is facing his father about Carl, Bingo. not the bullies. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of just lampshaded until the very end when he sort of realizes it and that's where they reconnect. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, this girl Sarah and uh, he, they played two rounds of uh, Jumanji. The first one that Sarah does uh, summons bats, although they're delayed bats. And uh, Alan's is to be um, like stretched with 90s technology and sucked into a jungle within Jumanji. And it's disgusting just watching him like stretch across the scene. It's like um, uh, Eoan Griffith in uh, Fantastic Four. It's like, I'm going to throw up. Luckily, it's only quick, but then an entire whirlwind sucks Alan into the board game, and then Sarah runs, exits pursued by a bat, um, and then like 62 more bats, um, screaming, and the Jumanji game is left there in the living room, and the parents are out at a party, and apparently Alan just disappears. You notice what Sarah doesn't do, by the way? What? Become a vigilante who spends the rest of her life trying to search down disappeared children. <laughs> <laughs> No, it may have been on her to-do list, but uh, but no, she she takes a different approach to that. Um, so yeah, twenty six years later, and this lovely huge house uh, is bought, and this no, there's no explanation or reason why this happens. Two children have lost their very well-to-do parents in a car crash up in Canada, and so is Baby New Earth their guardian? Their aunt. Their aunt. Aunt, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Baby New Earth from Friends, uh, Fraser, uh, who played Lilith. Um, also in the faculty, uh, is basically looking after them. And so rather than buying them a small, modest apartment, um, she buys them an extravagant uh, country house. 
It's redonkulous. Why? Like, there's way too much space. That's going to make these kids feel more alone, more isolated, more like there should be a whole family in this house, and there isn't, and there's never going to be until they're old enough to start two I, families. It's redonkulous. I think there's an offhanded comment about her turning into a bed and breakfast, which is just like, yeah, sure, we're going to stay in this house, and people are just going to randomly invade your home. So I, that'll be great for your grieving process, little kids. Have fun. That's that's shit. Why don't they just come and live with her? Or, or, or uh, like, just go and live somewhere sensible? It, it did occur to me, actually, right? She's a... She's a Unless um, that house is going cheap, it could be the murder house. Well, yeah, nobody's lived in it for, for a quarter of <laughs> that'll a That'll be why. Yeah, that'll it, be why. It did occur to me that there's a whole other movie going on that's entirely focused on Bebe Newarth and the fact that she's this, you know, hard-nosed career woman who suddenly mm. got dumped with her brother's two kids because their parents have died. <laughs> Yeah. See, that's just like a Chris Columbus movie happening in the margins where, like, maybe someone dresses up in makeup halfway through and is trying to run this con, and, oh, wait, it's Mrs. Duckfire. Oh, dear. <laughs> you started the Jumanji, did you? <laughs> My doppelgangers in there. Uh, did we end up talking about Mrs. Doubtfire twice in a row? Two different podcasts. <laughs> 26 years have passed. It's now 1995. Mm. and um, I love the transition here, by the way. They zoom in on the door, yep. and then you just and the, see the ivy grow up around the door. A little handle, bit, and it yeah. fades into Yeah, and it's just uh, the, the paint starts to flake a bit, and it's, it's a nice dissolve. And uh, I noticed, I noted, by the way, that um, when the Jumanji starts going boom, 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 and it's never really explained, mysticism and magic are more rare in today's films than fetishized technology is. It's, it's with the exception of Harry Potter, obviously, and, you know, Doctor Strange is on the way. The exploration of, you know, mysterious sort of, you know, unexplained phenomena just doesn't really sort of seem to be in cinema as much as um, tech. And I'm just wondering if we're ever going to get past the sort of the, the tech obsession and sort of start going back a little bit more. Well, there's, there's you know? very little that we don't have the information available to understand these yeah. days. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, people who don't necessarily have the knowledge of what goes on inside a smartphone, nonetheless have them and are able to use them. So that's the, we don't really know what this does, we just know that it works these days, is the technology mm. that we actually have at our fingertips. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this, it's, I kind of like the fact that, you know, I mean, Jumanji is not a brilliant film for me, but uh, I, I like the fact that it's sort of exploring something kind of magical, and I kind of wish that there was more stuff like that now. I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying too many superheroes. I don't actually consider that to be the case, but um, uh, it would be nice to get more magic. So, Doctor Strange is gratifying. But it, Doctor Strange isn't going to be any more kid-friendly than... No. Little kid-friendly, yeah. I mean, uh, than, yeah. um, than any of the... Sorry, there's a movie we've never seen, The Page Master. <laughs> I've seen it. Oh, you seen it? Mm. Okay. Uh, anyway, so um, the kids find and start playing the game as soon as Auntie Bebe leaves, and um, they bring about mosquitoes, giant, horrible mosquitoes, and then they bring about monkeys, giant, horrible monkeys. So awful. And I, I oh. said, I said that the animation was terrible on Twitter, and someone's like. Well, you know, to my young mind, that animation was great. And it was like, well, dude, to my young mind, that animation was terrible. They look uh, they look really bad. They looked obviously CGI back in 1995. Yeah, but, but they were the only just, monkeys we had back in those days, apart from... Yeah, just seeing CGI was like, oh, that's kind of a 
thing. And But now you look back and you're like, oh, that's why we didn't have a lot of furry animals in, yeah. in movies for a good while. Because they couldn't do fur well. Yeah. The lion looks slightly better, but so much of that is the puppet. They don't have nearly as much CG as the monkeys yeah. do. They're doing a Jurassic Park thing where um, they're, they're sort of flipping back and forth between the two of them. Unfortunately... Jurassic Park is Stan Winston and um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic's absolute level best at both burgeoning new CGI and perfected animatronics. This is not. <laughs> it's not. In either case. So whenever the lion's still, it's animatronic, and whenever it's moving, it, it's CGI, and it looks kind of ropey in both scenarios. The, the best the lion looks is when it's in the shadows, when you first find out, you know, it's, the, it's announced with a little poem, a rhyming couplet, you know, he likes your, uh, his teeth are sharp, he likes your taste, so you better move your ass post haste. And then you just see like a tail and you hear the uh, sort of and it's in the attic and it's where a lion shouldn't be. And then a lion's paw comes down on the piano keys and it's like, well, that's really good. And then it's in the shadows and it's like, that's less good. And then it starts running at them and it's like, that's a lot less good. <laughs> so the thing about <laughs> Jurassic Park... The claws come through the door and it's like, that doesn't look right. The thing about Jurassic Park is most of the dinos are in the dark and when they're in the light, they tend to be the sort of the brachiosaurs um, and the uh, gallimimus. So it's it's less... And the, t- uh, the trike... The animatronic trike is a, a triumph still. Um, but here, who boy. Um, so, yeah, terrible monkey animation. They like. I'm wondering whether it would have been better if it had just been one monkey. You know? Like, just to focus on it. But just all the chaos going on with CGI monkeys, like, that none of them are going to look fantastic. Uh, I don't know. Uh, one thing I noticed that when some monkeys sneak up on a police car, and they do drive a lot of cars in this film, no explanation for that. They were like because they were moving quietly. There was no sound of their horny little hands as they padded along the pavement, and sound is very important when you're employing CG animals because you you can't smell, luckily not taste or touch what you're seeing on screen as with all uh, animals or things like that. But you can hear and see it. If you take away one of those two components, that's one less of the key links to what you're seeing on what what you're experiencing on screen so if every single time they put their little hand down on the floor there's a, there's a subtle little like that just and it just a perfectly match matched series of movements that sells it just a little bit more to your brain there are little tricks you can do little overlaps that you can do just like um very casual uh, ways of introducing um uh, CG creatures that paint the full picture, if that makes sense. It's sort of the audio version of intermixing real elements with, with CGI. It's, yeah. it's something that is a physical presence and a, and a real thing that you're hearing so that you're giving weight and, and context to a, a fake image. Yeah. It's kind of how with uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, like one of the things they really did very, very well mm-hmm. was they added wind to when Spider-Man was swinging around. And it's something yeah. you don't necessarily think of immediately, but it helps a lot it to just sell there. the... Yeah. yeah, just sell the... He's actually swinging. He's actually doing that. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Absolutely. <laughs> so after the lion turns up, Alan returns from the jungle, and he is aged into bearded Robin Williams. And we all know that Robin Williams does his best acting when he has got face fuzz on. I don't know what it is. It's something about... He's like Samson. 
the more hair he's got, the better he is. So it's wordless to begin with. He, you know, he rolls at the line and then uh, wrangles it into a bedroom. Um, but then when he goes into his own room and his parents' uh, bedrooms and he's sort of searching around the house, and it, it's all his acting with his body and all the acting with his eyes. It's fantastic stuff. And then. You know, he starts sparring with the kids and then shaves it all off and becomes much more like Robin Williams after that. And so, but it's still, I was impressed with the way Robin Williams, R.I.P.D., sorely missed, committed to the role. He is taking it very seriously, and this this was before you had quite as many Robin Williams performances where he was going heavily into dramatic roles specifically, and he was just coming out of a lot of comedy roles specifically in children's movies but in this children's movie he's he's kind of the straight man which is unusual for him and actually again you know it's, it's more key to being his bit of a imagine if he'd been wacky robin williams in this Ugh. Ugh. they're relying daniel in mrs doubtfire when he's going crazy mm. but, but they're relying on the cg to deliver the wacky there yeah. isn't really any wacky behavior from any of the actors yeah thinking about it there's no real reason why it had to be robin williams but the fact that he's there definitely sold the movie oh yeah he's very good and he's he's kind of an empathy machine just in general but especially Mm. in this it's very easy to root for robin williams yeah yeah and also he actually does very well in roles that have um very specific psychological layers to them um he there's something about what he was able to bring to those stories and I think you know now we know a bit more about how his life was playing out that we didn't know back then that might shed a little light on that yeah um but I think he he brought um an insight and a feeling to that that layer that another actor might not have been able to pull off Mm. So uh, Alan runs to the uh, shoe factory, still dressed like Tarzan, and um, uh, finds out from the uh, old fellow there, ah, sure, it was a shame what happened to that family, um, that uh, his father had just not given up on looking for him and had taught, you know, basically run himself into the grave with worry and um, fretting over uh, his lost son. And just the idea that his father never really showed how much he loved him is poignant. And again, that's... Robin Williams sells that, mm. and um, it's a it's a nice core part of the story, and it sort of you know flags the important aspect that uh, Alan's been wrestling with for years. Yeah. The deterioration of the town, I think, is important as well because the, yeah. the the factory was obviously sort of the center point of the town and brought a lot of money and a lot of work. Um, and as they're walking around the town, you can see the shops closed down. Mm. Um, you know, everything looks as though it's not as thriving as it, it once was. Yeah. And the implication is that that's all because the factory closed down and, and wasn't able to continue mm. bringing prosperity to them. Yeah, it's not as quite as in your face as the, the dark 1985 from like Back to the Future 2. <laughs> but it's very, it's very noticeable given how good Johnson is at just showing a Norman Rockwellian image of period Americana. Mm. You're, you're just kind of, it, and again, it, it's sort of where you, it feels like kind of almost a, a whole separate movie could be happening about this town that's down on its luck and, and all this is happening. And 
mostly we're just focusing on this crazy board game, but it gives a lot of character to to the sort of setting and, and background characters. Oh my god, now that you put it like that, it is Back to the Future 2. It's an alternate timeline. It's Donnie Darko. This is the whole thing. It, 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 it tells us the story of this tangent universe, which then gets closed down at the end. Oh my god. And when you look at specifically what happens right before he wins Jumanji, it gets really dark for the kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the mosquitoes are causing havoc. People are crashing their cars and having to be bought twitching into ambulances. That's pretty dark as well. The uh, the ambulance, uh, the paramedics say something like, this is the 50th Yeah, person people are being, like, you know, dis- like taken down by mosquitoes. They're not, they're not saying dead. And the monkeys haven't directly chewed people's faces off, but you can probably imagine deaths happening as a result of these stampedes. We've we've had, like, 50 of these bites. They sound baffled. There's medical professionals on this. Surely somebody would have gone, well, that looks like an insect bite, it's really big. One of the cops must have seen one of these mosquitoes. They're the size of a cat. Um, (laughs) The knitting needle for a proboscis. Yeah, speaking of uh, the uh, cops, uh, Soul Man Carl turns up again as a policeman uh, who uh, Alan um, crosses paths with. And then suddenly Alan's like, you know, oh, it's it's Bill. Now I've got to change the timeline. This ain't what I was expecting at all. Um, (laughs) I feel so sorry for David Alan Greer's character in his car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He gets locked up and, and uh, t- uh, handcuffed with his own handcuffs to his own car. But there's a lot of chaos with the monkeys, you know, like, stealing this car and that car, and, and then, like, Bebe Newworth gets stranded out of town as well. Um, and, and anyway, uh, Alan shaves, and then Lyra noticed that as soon as the monkey jumps out of the freezer, um, or the fridge, uh, he's shaving, he's got little shaving... Um, bits stuck to his face they're just gone straight away after that it's like right, we've made that gag now it's gone let's everyone forget that um, but the monkey that jumps out of the fridge is disgusting it's it's grey and it's juddering and shivering and you know the, it doesn't have enough frames of animation and it just looks like uh, a, you know um, it's not the right depth yeah, no. And their shadows are so barely tangible as well they don't, they don't really seem like the light really re- like with 90 CG, the light never quite bounced off their bodies in the right way, uh, and you know they didn't. They didn't feel like they were objects in the room, and uh, they, their color didn't match their surroundings in the same way. They've well, we take it for granted now because they've gotten so good at that. But this was just the test runs. This was just they're trying it out. So you know, it's, it's good that films like this exist. I think I just I mentioned that like the facial technology they stuck young Robert Downey Jr.'s face on in Civil War they had to start somewhere so it's that disgusting Patrick Stewart Neil McKellen bit in the beginning of X-Men 3 so unfortunately you have to sort of lay certain films on the altar of we're just trying this out to actually get to where you're going you know yeah gotta gotta stand on the shoulders of giants yeah Uh, so there's uh, the kids are playing and there's a bunch of like triffids turn up and rhinos turn up and elephants turn up and zebras turn up and the carnivorous plant in particular actually looks like something out of John Carpenter's The Thing. It's horrifying for a children's family movie because you know that that thing's just going to split open. This is going to just like chomp down on Kirsten Dunst's head and she's going to run around the room going, <laughs> they're running around the place. And uh, then this hunter turns up uh, out of uh, the, the game and he's hunting Alan because he, he you know, he, he craves the sweet meat of human flesh. Or something. <laughs> Jesus. He's hunting the deadliest game, and I don't mean High Lie. Sharon, the fact that he's played by 
the same actor as uh, Robin Williams' father in this. Mm-hmm. What was your interpretation of that? Well, it's basically it's a similar device that was used in the 2003 Peter Pan. Which was a device that had been used for decades in the uh, Peter Pan stage play, where yeah. the father plays both Captain Hook and uh, Mr. Darling. Yeah. Basically, the, the way I was looking at it from that point on, and, and possibly a little bit before then as well, was that if you think of Alan as having basically the the trauma of his father trying to pack him off to boarding school has made him retreat into this childlike state that he doesn't come out of for a quarter of a century. Mm. And when he does emerge from the game, what he's having to deal with is basically the, the internal conflict with this parent, this father, that he's created in his own mind. Mm. That's not actually his dad that he's trying to reconcile with. What he's trying to resolve is this cruel, vicious, angry father image that has made him have to hide in this internal jungle for years and years and years. Going into the town and finding out that his actual father cared a great deal about him to the point where his absence caused everything in this town to fall apart because his father the you know the holder of the the keys that was keeping everything together just melted away with him not being there mm. the way the the jungle wilderness then starts to come through from the game fills the house up um, that to my mind to my way of looking at it was Alan's internal conflicts and his his internal struggles all coming out into his reality. Um, That basically having been stuck in that state for years and and not being able to grasp what had happened to him, he's now, again, if you see him as um, a, a, a person who has now grown up but has no interest in re-engaging with life he you know he clings to the whole jungle thing the tactics he uses to begin with are all jungle based he's you know it takes him a little bit of time to get out of those clothes it just as it as it unfolds from there it's almost as though he's he's going through this psychological reconciliation and the the animals and the the game are simply um an externalization of that mm. And focusing in on Van Pelt, he's if you look at what the character is shown visually to be and what we're what we hear Alan's father described as is he says, you know, my father could barely even touch me, let yeah. alone chop me up. At you know, he's looking at a father that he saw as distant and trying to push him away, and then it gets twisted into this character who's got the same face but literally will not stop pursuing him. Yeah. While Only with with bad touch, yes. not good touch, bad Absolutely. touch. That, that suddenly became a completely different movie. Um, while all this is going on, they hunt down uh, Sarah, the, uh, the the little girl who started the game with Alan twenty six years ago, and she's grown into Bonnie Hunt, who is brilliant in everything. She totally is. I'd, I'd completely forgotten that Bonnie Hunt was in this. Mm. So and went, as soon as ah! she showed up, I was like, Oh my god, it's Bonnie Hunt! Yeah. 
love her. One of her best roles that I can put a finger on is uh, Jerry Maguire, where she plays uh, Renée Zellweger's disapproving sister Laurel. Um, She's she's more of a a character actress, and she's more of a sort of a a support actress. She's in her voice is in almost all the Pixar films, um, so you'd recognise her that way. But um, in this, she plays a, a woman who has. Because everyone thought that she had gone crazy, because her explanation is to where Alan had gone did not match reality, she, she has responded in, in various ways, none of them particularly effective, which seems to tie in with the movie's disdain for self-help. Sharon? Um, yeah, yes and no. It does seem a little bit that way, but it kind of goes back and forward, because to start with, when they first meet Sarah, she's actually she's kind of a weird blend of two different psychological approaches neither of which seem to be particularly successful Mm -hmm. you've got the fact that she has taken on this uh, mystic psychic persona I can't remember what her name is but she's basically a fortune teller Madam Serena and that's basically a persona that she has set up to hide behind. That's a way of, of retreating from everything that's going on around her. So that is not a healthy way of dealing with what she's faced. Mm-hmm. However, she has also been engaged with various professional, probably medical psychiatrists. She speaks to somebody on the phone at one point about her medication levels. Um, and that hasn't helped her either because basically over the years they've been trying to teach her to conceal all of this, to, to convince her that it wasn't real, that it didn't happen. And that almost seems to be... I, I don't know how prevalent this was in the 90s, in the mid-90s particularly, but when psychiatrists had become fairly standard there were phases of them being kind of rejected out of hand because of the idea that they would get kids to make things up or, you know, that they would they would uncover family secrets that people didn't really want to know. So that's not, you know, this approach that she's been taught of this didn't really happen, deny your reality, mm. you're crazy if you think this is... This is those, those psychiatrists haven't been much more help than the average person. Um, so they haven't given her a healthy way of dealing with it either. And yet, somewhere in all of that, she does seem to have picked up some pretty healthy ways of dealing with situations. When um, Alan is telling her about Van Pelt, her response is, well, have you tried sitting down and talking to him? And clearly that is, you know, if, you, if you're having conflict with your your parent or in any relationship the first step is have you tried sitting down and talking about it I mean that might not work in a lot of cases that may run into brick walls but that would be the place to start I don't think that that's the point of the movie I don't think that was what they were getting at I think it was supposed to be a ridiculous thing of lady he's shooting at him with a gun and the fact that uh, Alan doesn't act on that Mm -hmm. later later on suggests that uh, it's just a ludicrous thing that um, peaceniks say Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, he sort of does because he doesn't actually try to have a conversation, but mm-hmm. but part of his ending game is, you know, uh, he does stop running and he does actually face him and you know, they don't necessarily hash out philosophy, but... But he does defeat him with words. Indeed. So if they'd actually made it, you know, this is one thing that I have, uh, I've never done, you know, I've never done, sat down and talked about this. If they'd flagged that as more of I'm listening to my friend now and that, you know, rather than, uh, uh, you know, 
conflict where it does is not required. I'm, I'm seeking to resolve this in a way. And if Van Pelt then was like, "Oh bollocks to this," and just tried to shoot him tried again, shoot him in the head. that's like, well, there's some people that you just can't talk to. No, I'm also not entirely sure where all this psychological analysis of and uh, deconstruction of the characters comes in when they Home Alone Depot Van Pelt. Like they, because they had to because yeah. it was 1995 and that means grown-ups who go yeah when they fall into children's traps mm, and multicolour him. Yeah. But there, there's two. I'm other- covered in paint as opposed to being crushed to death by <laughs> there's, paint. There's two other elements where they um, they kind of rubbish the idea of of any of professional psychological assistance. Again, at either end of the scale. You've got at the very beginning when um, Judy and Peter are talking to each other about the fact that to deal with their grief over their parents, basically Judy has retreated into fantasy and lies and um, Peter won't talk to anybody apart from Judy. Hmm. Um, And they threaten each other with shrinks. He basically says to her, you know they're going to take you to a shrink if you keep lying all the time. And she points out to him, what do you think they're going to do to you when if you don't start talking to people? Yeah. Um, and then when um, Aunt Nora is coming back to the town in her car, she's listening to self-help tapes. Yeah. And then she comes across a stampede against which the self-help tapes are utterly useless. Yeah. So there does seem to be this consistent theme of um, basically anybody that you're uh, paying money to to try and assist you with your psychological tangles is useless. That's a worrisome point of view. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Alan becomes his father of uh, the uh, crying Pete. The, the, the kid tries to cheat and then starts turning into a monkey, as you do. But uh, he was quite intrepid on the river. He stops the uh, uh, Jumanji game from uh, washing away uh, by hanging from a branch, which shows he has monkey predilections already. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's crying because his tail's growing inside his jeans and it's clearly hurting him. So Alan sort of barks at him to just become be a man and then realises that he's become his father because he's not been able to interact with anyone before, uh, aside from Van Pelt and monkeys. Mm. Um, uh, but this, again, is a really important... It, it fits with um, kind of the, the the idea that all of this is... Alan working out his his psychological issues with his father to enable him to re-engage with life again. What he basically gets to do with Peter is reparent that inner child who felt so isolated and abandoned and and neglected by his father. And to to recognise that that's not... That stiff upper lip approach is not the ideal way to, to carry forward. Yeah. Uh, then there's a monsoon, an alligator. Um, the, the worst effects in the whole thing are animatronic. This is a, like uh, our, our friend Neil is is uh, a big proponent of uh, animatronic over CG. But you know we have gotten him to admit in the past that sometimes it, it swings the other way and animatronic is inferior to CG. In this case, the spiders. My God, do they look like garbage? And it's like, well, why don't you just skip the spiders? They if they look like that, don't do toys. it. There's a bit in um, uh, the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff of Alien 3 where they put a small greyhound in an alien outfit and got it to run along a corridor, and it was adorable, but it wasn't <laughs> scary, and so they didn't do it. In which case, if your spiders look like that, don't do them. You know, wait until Harry Potter 2, and then you can do spiders properly. Well, they look like a wind-up toy, which yeah. is kind of a shame because taken as still pictures, they look kind of creepy. Oh, They've yeah. got just yeah. a little bit of translucency on their legs, but... But when they move around, it's just, no. Mm. 
But it feels like a, in a lot of places this film, their ambition exceeded their grasp, which I can't can't fault them for trying. Although I think I just did. Um, <laughs> maybe um, maybe just dial it back a bit. You've got plenty of animals. You don't have to keep adding ones that aren't very good. So you know, no one's going to say, "Well, what about spiders?" Save them for the sequel, maybe. But, and for some of them do look fairly decent. Like the, the stampede, partially because it's usually mid-ground shots and they're going very fast. That yeah. doesn't look, you know, awful. Yeah. At the end, yeah, um, Alan faces down Van Pelt and faces his fears and accepts that his father... This is something you noted, Sharon. His father did teach him one useful thing, and that's the one of the major things he has to realize. Mm. It's, it's not necessarily that they're facing down the fears, as that that was something that his father told him and that he's been... Just, you know, denying that his father loved him or cared about him or had anything important to say or that he could become like his father and that that would be a good thing. Once he reaches that level of acceptance, the game is won, everything gets sucked back in and the timeline is righted, which erases everything that happened mm. in that divergent universe. Yeah. yeah, Which is a good thing since Judy's dead. Yeah. Like, she, she got poisoned by one of those sticking bars and she is just... Dead. Oh, like, Judy's Kirsten Dunst, by the way, folks, if you haven't seen this movie. <laughs> a young Kirsten Dunst not acting at her, uh, her uh, interview with a vampire level of intensity. But, Although you know, they do deliberately introduce her with kind of a gothic creepiness, which is obviously a reference to her performance oh. in Interview with a Vampire. Maybe and so. then it turns out that she's basically just faking it to spook everybody out. And then uh, Alan talks to his father as a young child again and uh, says, it was me what put the shoe in the... Uh, Machine and Carl Bentley's not not his fault. What he should have said was, "You should probably listen to Carl Bentley. He's got some great ideas about shoes." Mm. And had I not completely mangled it, you'd have seen a really really good. He could have completely turned the tide on um, on the shoe technology. We could have had those inflatable Nikes that they have in Back to the Future Two now. We, oh, hang on a minute. We should. We have do. They're like yeah. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think he actually ended up creating a whole new timeline where high tops were, like, major high tops, the puffy kind, were created in the early 70s. So everyone went through a completely different fashion trend. Uh, Instead of bell bottoms, it was uh, what people were wearing in 1989. So acid wash jeans. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But then they, um, he and uh, and Sarah get rid of the, the Jumanji game sequel. Sarah explains away the creepy idea of the fact that they are now 40-year-olds in the bodies of 13-year-olds. I think I'm beginning to forget what it's like to be a grown-up. And it's like, oh, that's okay then, because otherwise that would be really fucking creepy. Because every single single little tryst they have with another uh, kid their own age is going to feel like, for a long time, a long, long time, a good 10 years or so, and even then... Like, to, to, to carry with you those decades of experience. Like, Alan's never going to forget what it's like to live in a jungle for two, 26 years. And um, I think that's why they end up together, is because yeah. while they kind of forget what it's like to be grown-ups, they've still got so many years of shared experiences that, yeah. I mean, eh. Yeah. What are you going to do? And then when they, uh, they meet the uh, not-car-crashed parents of uh, the kids later on at a party that they've been planning for some decades, you know, then they meet the kids and like, they're like, oh, they're, they're just as we imagined. And it's like, that's not creepy. That's not creepy at all. 
but but no, it's yeah, okay. It's, he's Robin Williams. He's yeah, not creepy. He's not creepy. He's, he's, your, he's, your, he's your nice uncle. Uh, him dressed as Santa Claus reminded me that Robin Williams wanted to be Hagrid. He, he so wanted that, and uh, he, he would have been the wrong man for the job. But um, you know, it, it, he he just loved that kind of. You know, he, he read uh, the Harry Potter books to his daughter Zelda, and um, you know, re- really wanted to be part of that. Probably, you know, probably could have had had a part somewhere had the movies been more American, but they went for the but the best of British instead. But yeah, so yeah, basically the, the whole timeline's righted, and uh, some French kids find the Jumanji game sequel? Question mark? No. Lisa, I need you to look after your two favorite people in the whole world. You did. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Keep your eye on them. Make sure they don't burn down the house. Dad, okay. Play with me. Read this for me. Meteor shower. Because Vicky Vase. It's Meteor! Take a race of action! Walter, check this out. Pictures presents a new adventure from the world of Jumanji. If this is some weird kind of joke you guys are trying to pull, you're dead. What does it say? We go home when we're finished. You gotta keep playing. The game is on. She's frozen in cryonic sleep. Dad's gonna kill us. The danger is real. Your robot is defective. We don't even have a robot. That's your robot? Dude, you're just jealous because I have a robot and you don't. Why would Emergency you? must destroy. Think we're home. Zathura. I gotta tell you, the house looks fantastic. Right, we've got about six minutes to cover all of Zathura. <laughs> <laughs> Zathura is a superior film to Jumanji, which nobody bloody saw. It was it cost like thirty. Oh no, it was like sixty-five million dollars, the exact same amount as Jumanji cost ten years previously. This is two thousand five rather than nineteen ninety-five. It made sixty-four point three million dollars, so it flopped. Uh, it was directed by John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, who uh, went on to direct Iron Man like three years later and who was not a big fan of the original. So even though they said from the world of Jumanji on the posters, he was not particularly keen to make it uh, like a a direct sequel to Jumanji. And he was very keen on using practical effects. The short of it is there are two brothers, one's young, one's slightly older. They're fighting a lot because their parents just got divorced. The older brother, played by uh, Josh Hutcherson, the uh, Peter Mellark from the Hunger Games. Um, Oh, sweet little Josh, around about... 10, 11 years old um, is is particularly resentful of his younger brother because he's like, you know, our parents wouldn't have gotten divorced if it weren't for you. And their dad, Tim Robbins, is like, God, you kids, just stop fighting. And their do- their sister, Bella, from Twilight, is, you know, forced to babysit them. And then they dig out of the uh, um, the, the scary basement, Zathura, a space oh, adventure that game. that made me want to shake those kids. Right, he says, um, Walter says of the house, it's creepy and old. That house is not old. Yeah. I mean, it might be like it's old in American, American terms, old, yeah. But it's not old. <laughs> That's like it was. A, looks like it was built in the seventies. Yeah. 
Oh, that's that's really old. No one was alive. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to spoil the plot of Zathura. I will just say that basically after they start playing Zathura, uh, very spacey things happen. They go through various scrapes that are, uh, you know, like I say, uh, John Favreau was really big on practical effects. There was Stan Winston uh, workshop stuff going on there. And um, they... Uh, that the bro- the older brother has a lot of growing up to do. What happens in Zathura is totally worth watching, and I kind of it's sad that they didn't employ a uh, a big name actor to sell that film. I worked out basically who would who would have been the guy in two thousand and five to sell that film to a much wider audience. Like, who, who would have been the equivalent of Robin Williams in 2005, do you think? Uh, let's see if you can guess this one, Brendan. Okay, so the equivalent of Robin Williams in 2005? Oof. Uh, now I'm drawing a blank. Um, he was doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory this year instead, and he should have done this. Oh, Johnny Depp. Yep. Fresh off doing yeah. Jack Sparrow. He also did The Corpse Ride this year, which is lovely. Um, but uh, then went on to play Creep Willy Wonka, the worst Willy Wonka, uh, by far. In- in- You're saying we got darkest timeline Johnny Depp, because if he'd done that, he might not have done Willy Wonka. And, oh, man, Bingo. that could change in- things. Instead, they employed Dax Shepard to play the astronaut that they made in this. And had it been Johnny Depp, and had it been kind of quirky, but also gone through the drama side of it, I think that would have sold this film. It's, Especially right after Pirates. Oh yeah, it's a much more boyish film than uh, Jumanji. There's uh, like you know the only girl in it really is um, uh, Bella, and uh, she spends the whole time being a, a, a stereotypical teenage girl, and like, the other half being frozen, and the other half being frozen. But uh, but yeah, the um, as a, as a film, it's 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 got some great turns to it, and it's uh, got some much better effects than Jumanji. And is is is, effect- is superior in pretty much every way. There's not you, all that much to say about it without spoiling it. You can see Favreau. Uh, I think time is going to be really kind to this and Favreau was just as in general because mm-hmm. this was before Iron Man. But you can see a lot of just the the brass tacks filmmaking ideas that show through in Iron Man really well, and also in this year's Jungle Book really well, and. Yeah, I, I think he's going to kind of be remembered well for, for films like this that are just very solid, very functional, and have a good emotional core. And just got this one just happened to get overlooked when it shouldn't have. I would say that if he'd released this uh, instead of Cowboys and Aliens uh, and from the director of Iron Man, that would have gotten you know more people coming to see it. But like I said, you really do need that big star for things like this you know because the last mimsy which i mentioned yesterday um like it has no one in it rain wilson's in it and ultimately you know with family adventures there's so many competing you gotta have a hook you gotta have someone that's gonna draw the adults in um and you can't you can't just be quirky and idiosyncratic and beautifully crafted and like have a really good story in there that's not going to get people through the door and word of mouth is for shit these days because by the time people have started talking about it it's gone from the theaters there has to have really positive pre-word of mouth you know which is why the jungle book was like hey look at all these voices we have you know literally all these people yeah yeah 
Do you think it, um, without giving away the the the, um, the plot itself, do you think that there is quite as much to break down psychologically, or is it more of a straight line? Um, it, it's more. There's more plot happening um, rather than focusing on sort of the wacky, crazy stuff. Hmm. In the sense that you're not being distracted by badly CGI'd monkeys, yeah. so it's it's easier to feel the peril that the kids get placed in. It's weirdly pitched in terms of um, sci-fi culture because it's it's the, the Zathura game, unlike the 19th century Jumanji carved by an African shaman who also worked for MB Games. Um, this is uh, clearly designed in the Buzz... No, not the Buzz Lightyear. The just-after-Woody was popular sort of uh, early 60s obsession with uh, cosmonauts and uh, astronauts and space flight and Flash Gordon era, mm. sort of late 50s, early 60s kind of B-movie thing, to the point where the um, alien spaceships, when they show up, look like um, the Planet Express ship, because Futurama has similar stylings. Mm. Um, but that's a really difficult era to pitch to people because the only people who even remember that stuff looked like that are in their 80s, 90s now and they're not paying for cinema tickets and uh, you know you, you can't really sell that level of sci-fi when there's so much tech fetishization that makes it all about the shiny and the new and the iPods and the which they do nod to at the beginning because Walter says that basically the game looks stupid and old and he doesn't yeah. want to play because it's made out of tin and it rattles and Walter Josh Hutchison is the ideal like the ideal like seen it all type, audience member that uh, Favreau's job is to win over mm, yeah and I think where Jumanji has this through line of uh, the father son conflict mm. um, that's that's being resolved by the activity of the game mm. um, Zathura has a sibling rivalry story which is similarly available for deconstruction however because he is a kid looking forwards rather than a man looking backwards mm. there's a lot less to pick apart because it hasn't happened yet all of the things that are potentially going to um, damage their relationship haven't happened yet yeah. Yeah. two more things one the, the youngest kid what's his name uh, Danny Danny shows up in his dad Tim Robbins office and these kids are just badgering him can I play can I play can I do stuff and the dad's like I've got to work but you kids shut the fuck up and he's like can I play Smash Bros and he's holding two PlayStation 2 controllers two Dual Shocks, <laughs> and later on we see them holding and playing with the, the, the Dual Shocks, playing on a, a Who Gives a Fuck game and they're playing on the PlayStation 2 good luck trying to get Smash Brothers to work on that thing I mean, the, like the little kid who delivered that line should have said, "But Smash Brothers isn't on PlayStation." To uh, John Favreau, um, but John Favreau would have said, "Yeah, but okay, kid. But we've been given uh, five thousand dollars by Nintendo for the uh, budget for this thing. Uh, that's the craft services table for this week. Uh, so you're going to say Smash Brothers, okay?" <laughs> you think they could have spent like fifty bucks in a waiver or something? Yeah, or or just like get a GameCube. Like, it's like, oh my god, okay, right, can someone get down to Toys R Us, please? Just, like, get a GameCube, stick that in the shot instead, because if Nintendo paid them to say Smash Bros, get a GameCube. And also, Nintendo should have goddamn sent them a GameCube to make sure that a fucking schoolboy error like that... No, you know what? In fact, schoolboys would not make that error. That is an old man error, if ever I saw one. That is a Christopher Lee playing a Game Boy without a cartridge in it in Police Academy 6 mistake. Uh, and the only other thing to mention is that uh, Jumanji is from the director of Captain America the First Avenger, and Zathura is from the director of Iron Man. So this is technically a board game civil war, if you watch them <laughs> together. 
Uh, uh, so yeah. And in 2005, it's not like they they would have had GameCubes were a hundred bucks in 2005. The yeah. Wii was almost out. They could have gotten. Yeah. Simple enough. Or I mean, just like if, if they hadn't been paid by Nintendo, just say, "Yeah, can we play God of War?" But the other thing is like. Um, can we play God of War Christ now, <laughs> poor kid. Can we play Ratchet and Clank? Is that is that a, a PlayStation game? Yeah. But yeah, Tim Robbins goes out and says, just play on your own or, or like, you know, play with it. Just play with it. They've got a PlayStation 2 right there. Under like no parent ever says in a movie, Look, I got the Lion King. Watch the Lion King. And then the kids sit down and watch the Lion King. End of movie. Zathura sits in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Since we recorded that, we found out that John Favreau's next movie is a live-action adaptation of The Lion King. Uh, no, but they've got a PlayStation there. They could have been playing Tekken, but it doesn't happen. It's probably a good idea if you've not seen either of these films, get them both. It's worth watching the two of them in tandem. If you've only seen Jumanji and it was a while back, get Zathura. It will pleasantly surprise you, unless I've built it up too much, in which case it probably will disappoint you. <laughs> Any more, Brendan, on either of these films? I mean, I think you pretty much know that they're both very solid. I do think Zathura is slightly better. If you've seen Jumanji from a kid's perspective, like if you grew up with it, you're going to have certain nostalgic attachment to it. I know I do. Yeah. Um, I don't pretend that that makes it more than it is, but I think it's kind of sort of at the middle better spectrum of Johnston's career. It's not quite as good as Cap 1, obviously, or even The Rocketeer. Mm-hmm. But, it's better you know, than Jurassic it's Park 3. There's certainly no better than Jurassic Park 3. Alan moment. Actually, there's several, but... Uh... No? Alan. Alan! Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, she's catching up with the dad jokes there. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, none of the monkeys turns to him and goes, Alan! Because that would be weird. Yes, it would. Carry on to Reddit. <laughs> That's about it. Okay. Right. They're both worth a watch. Um... We are going to break now because we have to go and review BoJack Horseman. But thank you very, very much, Brendan, for coming on the show. It has been wonderful once again to have you. Always a pleasure. Okay. And where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on the Day One Patch Cinema Central podcast. We are on iTunes uh, Day Day One Podcast and also on SoundCloud Day One Podcast. And you can also find the Day One Patch boards at dayonepatch.com. Well, all right. Thank you very much, Brendan. We hope you enjoyed this one, Chris Finnick. And you got a... I think you got a big old chunk of your childhood re-delivered to you with some examinations to uh, to, to keep you going. Mm. Yeah. And folks, if you would like to commission a film, just get in touch with us and ask us if we're doing it. And if we're not going to do it, you might want to talk to us about it. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. And we're going to finish on Space Oddity, the relevance of which will become apparent once you've seen the film and understand the story of the astronaut. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on. Three, two, check ignition 
and may God's love be with you. Tin can. 